You are listening to First Church Charlotte. Praise the Lord, everyone. My, my voice doesn't cut through as good as my wife's does, so she always sounds powerful. Then I come up here and everyone's like, my God, he's going to preach. She's been make, making me look good for 27 years, so there we go. Praise the Lord, everybody. Great to see you all in the house of the Lord today. If you're visiting with us, thank you for taking a chance on us. We will try to host you well. Uh, we're a little bit crazy, but not a lot crazy. Just, just a little bit, so you'll be okay. Um, but if you were expecting a lot crazy, we're going to disappoint you because we're not a lot crazy. We're just, just a little bit crazy. But uh, this, this past week has been a very difficult week uh, for us as a, first, uh, as a church. Um, I will tell you a little story about someone most of you know, some of you don't know. Uh, his name is Shay Sotan, and he became part of First Church uh, in his late teens and has, uh, over the last several years, become deeply embedded in all the various uh, groups that he worked in. And he was tragically taken from us this past Monday in a car accident. And we have been, we have been uh, sad. <laughs> we have been very uh, heavy uh, this past week with that, that tragedy. Um, tragedy will come to all of us. Uh, it's part of life. I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about that today. Um, but before I, before I get into that, I'm going to show you a quick video of Shea. So um, a lot of you know him, but because our church is at a size with multiple services, whatnot, it may be difficult to place him. But as soon as you see his face, you'll know who he is. So um, we put together a little video remembering him, uh, and we're going to play that right now. Shay was easy to love. Uh, he, he wasn't a perfect young man, and he would never claim to be a perfect young man, but he was very easy to love. And he loved to serve, and he had a saying he often said, we serve with love. He would say that. Uh, he worked a lot with the First Steps, uh, which is a small group that I and other pastors teach after the 11 o'clock service. Like, for example, today we're on Lesson 2. But if you come to our church and you want to get to know more about us, um, we create this small group format where we feed you and we're able to sit together and talk together and get to know each other. Shay and his mother came through that process and he wanted to get involved and he immediately began to help anywhere he could be placed. And uh, my typical Sunday, if I was in first steps, uh, was to see Shay doing exactly what you saw him do right there, which was serve other people. He also would uh, many days be the last one to leave. And uh, I actually have a video that Clarissa uh, gave to me of him finishing up last person there. Our French African congregation is already starting their service. You can hear them in the background. And he is sending her, uh, sending her a video, and he's showing her the kitchen's clean, trash is taken out, going, to, going from place to place, saying, have a good day. Uh, that, was, that was Shay, and we are, we are deeply sad to lose him. Uh, but we, we allow God to work his perfect will in all of our life. Um, his funeral is going to be this week, uh, Saturday. It's in Raleigh because all of his family there is there. His mother is there because her family came and got her. She did not need to be alone. 
and came and got her and took her there. And so um, if you're interested, in, if you knew him and you were going to attend that, it's 11 a.m. on Saturday, let Brother Pastor Don know uh, so he can, uh, we can make sure they have seats saved for people making the drive. I'm preaching today from the subject um, entitled Praying Among the Ashes. And I want to directly speak to this issue of loss, uh, the issue of pain and suffering as it is experienced in our lives. Now, if you come to First Church much, you know I don't, I don't preach a lot about it. We acknowledge it, but we don't preach about it because usually Sundays are a day where we come together and we celebrate what God has done for us. Um, we, it's not that we're not open and honest about what we're going through. We are, but uh, we try to make it a day of worship and praise, so it's not overly common that I would address something like this on a, uh, on a Sunday and what made me do it, uh, first of all, was uh, a little bit different uh, situation. So Shay's mother, her name is Esther, um, last week her mother died and this week her son died. And when I, when I learned that, I, I was sitting in my office chair and I just looked up toward the heavens and I just said to the, I just said to the Lord, Lord, this is too much. Uh, this is too much. How, how many of you have ever felt that way in your life, where you're so struck with, struck with suffering and loss that you just look heavenward and you say, Lord, this is, this is too much? Uh, in the Bible, when people are in deep mourning and they're overwhelmed with the circumstances of their life, they would do something symbolically that was very much a part of their culture. We don't do it in the West um, but in their culture, they would mourn publicly. In the West, we mourn privately. Uh, we are, in many ways, in America, kind of the inheritors of uh, European styles of culture. Some of that is the actual uh, geography and the people of that. Some of that is the Judeo-Christian um, ethic that has grown up through the story of the West. But for whatever reason, we are reserved in our mourning. And in the East, particularly the Near East, uh, they're much more uh, demonstrable and they, they will publicly mourn. Um, in fact, in some of these ancient societies, it was not at all uncommon for them to actually bring other people in to mourn with them. It was not a acting, uh, even though the people that were there may not have known the person, they are mourning representatively because this person is saying, my loss is so great, my tears are not enough to express it. And so even though in the West we look at it kind of almost humorously because you think, well, you didn't even know then, but you're mourning, but it's not a mourning of a lie. Everybody knows it's a mourning of a symbolic statement that my grief cannot be measured. And in the West, we do the opposite. We grieve alone. Uh, we go into our quiet places, and if someone breaks down at a funeral and loses their composure, we're all, you know, uncomfortable. Now, this just is cultural inheritance. There's not necessarily right or wrong. Uh, I think that is to misunderstand it and to make something that doesn't need to be judgy needlessly judgy. 
Um, if if that happens, it it's it's human. It's it's part of it. But in the West, we're a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, and we want to organize it, and we want to kind of, you know, shuffle it back into the private spaces of our life. And here, in the time uh, of the Scripture, it was the opposite. They did not want to organize their grief and hide it. They wanted to demonstrate it, demonstrate it not as a statement of self, but as a remembrance of what they had, what they had lost. Now, why am I why am I talking about this? Um, in the Bible. In the Bible era, in the nations and the peoples of the time, uh, they would mourn, they would wear mourning clothes, they would take ashes and they would, they would heap ashes upon themselves, they would sit in ashes, they would throw ashes up in the air and the ashes would come down upon them and they would even take the ashes and they would put it on their head. Uh, this in church um, and high church tradition would turn into the uh, Ash Wednesday, I believe it is, where people would symbolically remember their, uh, you know, from dust and ashes they come. But speaking biblically, uh, you'll see in uh, the scripture where even Abraham, he uses dust and ashes as a symbol of who he is versus who God is, 18 and 27 of Genesis. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. Uh, This is a manner whereby uh, we contrast the lowliness of our reality with the dignity and majesty of who God God is. Uh, Job twice in his story will refer uh, to ashes as a sign of what he's going through and even who he is. Job 42 and 6, I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show to show my, my repentance. Uh, the prophet Daniel talks about ashes to show his distress and his repentance. Uh, David, King David, talks uh, about eating ashes in Psalms 102 to prove the depth and the pain of his lament, which a lament's just a fancy a word for sorrow and mourning and loss. And uh, this ashes, it becomes symbolic for a person who feels like everything of value has been consumed by fire and all they have left is the ashes of, of that loss. And so it is that when we in our lives are overwhelmed by sorrow, we don't publicly heap ashes on our head, but we absolutely know the emotional experience of what that feels like. We don't mourn in a demonstrable uh, public way usually, uh, but we absolutely resonate on a human level with people who so overcome with their loss uh, that it creeps into their public identity. Uh, we understand this, and when we talk about this issue of how do we, how do we deal with great loss, how do we uh, survive things that nearly break us, it, uh, it feels as though everything of value in our life has been burned to the ground. Uh, uh, what now? Uh, you can't, you can't uh, talk about this without talking about Job, the book of Job. Now, uh, when I, I've had at least one new convert who saw the book of Job and thought it was the book of Job, and uh, he told me he needed to read from the book of Job because he needed one. Um, true story, but uh, most people don't. Most people don't get that confused. It's not the book of Job, unless you need one, and then whatever you need it to be, <laughs> you, you just work that. Uh, <laughs> it's the book of Job, and uh, among 
community of faith, Christian community of faith, uh, Job becomes a symbol of, of something, and that is twofold. Number one, why do you serve God? Number two, uh, <laughs> why does bad things happen to good people, do you see? These are the two themes that are founded uh, and threaded through the book of Job, and uh, it, is, it is important for us as believers to be able to face and wrestle with these things and come to a, a spiritual acceptance of them, or we are left without hope. Stay with me on that. I'm going to talk a little bit more about, about it in a, in a moment. So two themes that are absolutely fundamental to the book of Job. Number one, why do we serve God? Number two, why does bad things happen to good people? Let's start with number one. Uh, the story of Job starts in the heavens, and there uh, a testimony is given in heaven, and the testimony is of a perfect and an upright man. Job is such an honorable man that even God speaks of Job's goodness, and God calls him a perfect and upright. And uh, this sounds strange to us because we would never refer to ourselves or even other people uh, as perfect, uh, but here is the Lord referring to Job as a perfect man. And Lucifer, he basically makes this point. Now, understand this because I want you to have strong foundations when the storm wind blows in your life. I want you to have strong, uh, how shall we say, ability to resist the sorrow, the pain, and the loss of your life. So here is the problem of Job. Why, Job, would you serve the Lord? God testifies of Job. Lucifer, who was there, disagrees with God and says, look, Job really isn't serving you. He's serving himself. You are just a means to an end. He serves you because you bless him. But what he's really after is Job's blessing. He's not after a relationship with God. He is not a friend. He's not a son. He's a consumer. And if you do not deliver the goods, he will drop you like a rock as if to say, if you want loyalty, get a dog. <laughs> he's, not, he's not loyal to you. He's really serving himself, but he's using you in order to get what he wants, and the Lord disagrees with this. Now, I want to point out something clear here, if, if I'm able to. Uh, this is a, the, the question upon which all of the Word of God will speak. The issue is not how we are good enough to be saved, but it is what God has done for us. Not what we would do, but what he has done. Therefore, our works must be turned into worship or they fail. Do you see? It must be worship in our life or ultimately it is real spiritual uh, failure. It must become not what we have done, but what he has done. This is the gospel. And so I want you to see that this question, why would Job serve God? This becomes the intro to the divine love story. Why would there be any relationship between God and his creation? The creation would always manipulate the creator to serve the needs of creation rather than it being a love story. There can no, be no love story in a bought and sold condition. 
There's some other words that I could use there that I will not use, but there can't be a love story if I'm paying you to act like you love me. Love has to be, if you have money to pay me, that's good. If you don't have money to pay me, that's okay too, for better or worse. Now, my wife for many years made more money than me, and sometimes it's, it's, it's a uh, dog fight. Uh, but I want you to know this. Uh, even when I didn't get my allowance, I didn't call the lawyers. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? I'm a trophy husband, yes, and as a result, I'm very expensive. Thank you very much. Those of you who have trained your wife up to be higher earners than you, I just want to say, dude, way to go. But I want you to see if I cannot disappear when the allowance gets cut and call it love. I can call it something but not love. Why, Job, are you going to serve God? Don't say you love him if you leave the first time trouble comes. This is the challenge of all of our lives and hearts. And this is why Job makes this point to his wife when she tells him that he should just give up and die. Uh, He says, look, if I am going to accept good from God... Uh, I, I can't, can't, shouldn't I also accept evil? Now, in the translation, it, it, it reads awkwardly because it seems to us like he's saying God is responsible for evil, and I don't believe that he's, that's what he's saying. He's talking about real love, real devotion, real worship. If I am in love, I can't just be there as long as it's good times. I have to stick it out for the bad times too. It's still a story, but it's no longer a love story if I give up. And so uh, this is the first issue. And then the second issue of why does bad things happen to good people? Uh, This is not simply something that Job wrestles with. Um, He uh, really speaks for all of us in many ways uh, when we go through suffering and loss and we want to ask God, we want to ask God why. Now, uh, in in the text, there is a uh, Job, like many of the books of the Bible, has parts to it. And a lot of times, if you're a Bible student, you've learned that the Bible will oftentimes tell the story what seems like twice, um, and they don't exactly line up. But if you understood the verse, the Hebrew verse, you would understand it better um, by this knowledge. Uh, oftentimes, uh, information will be given as a Hebrew poem or song. Uh, And earlier it was told as an account. This is the example of Genesis chapter number one, which is a a creation account, and Genesis chapter number three, which is a creation account. The difference is chapter three is written as a psalm or a song or a Hebrew poem, and chapter one is written as an account. Once you understand that, a lot of these things begin to fall into place. Now, critics, of course, don't want to study and understand that. They just want to say, see, see, Uh, but that's fine for them. They probably they weren't going to believe anyway. They're they're struggling on a different level, no matter what they tell themselves. And so here you see Job in the middle of the book. There's this long Hebrew poem written that is Job wrestling with God. It is Job standing before God, and he asks why, and he says, "I didn't deserve this." And he says, "If I did wrong, tell me." And then he makes a defense of himself, and he makes, uh, as it were, a defense account of his word. And then he asked God how he could do it. And it's this, this long, beautiful 
painful. If you've ever read through the book of Job, it's 40 chapters of pain, <laughs> uh, 47 chapters of pain. Um, it's, he's wrestling with God. Now, I want you to remember this image of Job wrestling with God, and his friends come to try to console him because his pain is overwhelming, and they don't know what to say. And uh, they mourn with him in the manner of the time, which is for seven days they just are with him and they do not speak. This is, as it were, sitting a vigil with him. Many cultures do this. And after they have sat for a while, they decide to try to understand and talk about it and explain it all away. Uh, all of us love to try to explain things because it gives us the illusion of control uh, it has the downside of trying to turn God into an algorithm as though you can predict what he would do, and uh, in some manner you can control the uncertainty of life. Now, uh, you are not a program that God coded and is running within a computer system. You have free will. You have choices. You have autonomy. Uh, you are not simply an automaton that God spun out. If you were, then he would be to blame for everything, but then you would not be in his image because he is a creator, and so you are a creator. You are in his image. He can create life. You can create life. You are in his image, and that comes with consequences. You're placed in a garden. You have dominion over the garden. You name it, you have rule over it, you create it. And this is a metaphor for how we live our lives, for how we progress in our, in our journey. And why is this important? Because if I have free will, then I'm placed within a world of constraints. And that world has realities in it because, remember, I'm not a program. I have free will. I have choices. I create. I become. I learn. I grow. And I manifest my choice for the creator or the self. This is not a new problem. This is the Lucifer problem. Here you are in this world, but you can choose what you honor, what you worship. Lucifer chose himself, and he lost access to the presence of God. And he has spent every moment since then trying to turn all of creation down his path. Don't choose the creator, choose the self. Let the creator serve you, not you serve the creator. This is the central spiritual challenge of the scripture. I'm not giving you guys too much heavy stuff. Are you surviving? Just give me a nod even if you're not. It'll make me feel better. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm showing you, if I can, how... You're placed within this world and there comes consequences. Why? You're not a program. You are becoming. You are choosing. You can choose the good and receive some of the good. You can choose the bad and receive some of the bad. But it's even more than that. Not everything happens is going to be good or bad. It's all going to be this set of experiences, this set of constraints, this set of potential, and you just as though you were given a garden, are going to exercise dominion over your life. You're going to choose this career. You're going to choose that boyfriend, that girlfriend. Some of you are going to choose the wrong boyfriend or girlfriend. Now what? Is it God's fault? Or did you have this sense of choosing, becoming? And if you're going to have that and you're not going to be an automaton, now you can't blame God for the constraints of that world. You can't blame God for the realities of that world. Now you can say, I should have never been made with free will. I should have been an automaton, so it would all be your fault. But the moment you say you should have had free will, you can't be, if you want to be logical, in my opinion,
opinion, you can't then blame God for the fact that you could choose, and there were constraints, and there were realities like gravity, and large objects uh, with lots of mass moving at high rates of speed have consequences when they come together, and when bullets are fired through the air, they have consequences on where they go, and the DNA and the physicality of your body sorting out its processes is not automaton, but is the knitting of you, the becoming of you, the constraints of your world, now you have to deal with the good and the bad. And here is the thing. Can you go through the good and the bad of your life and choose faith? That is the journey of the spiritual person. Can you have the good weeks and the bad weeks and choose faith? That is the journey of the believer. Let me say it this way. I I think this is helpful, at least it is for me. The life of faith doesn't feel like a life of questions and answers. The life of faith feels like a journey of questions and trust. Not questions and answers, but questions and trust. Why? When God finally answers Job, he doesn't give him answers. He gives him questions and asks him, can he trust? This is the story of faith, and this is why it is so, at times, challenging for us when we face difficulties and troubles in our life. Uh, There was a, a book that I came across entitled Wounded Warrior a survival guide for when you're beat up, burnt out, and battle-weary. I saw that title, and I leapt upon it, grabbed it as fast as I could. <laughs> beat up, burnt out, and battle-weary. And there are listed in the book 10 emotions that, uh, 10 emotions that oftentimes follow in the wake of tragedy. Uh, they're not necessarily in this order, but these are emotions we all of us face in tragedy. Number one, uh, he talks about anxiety. Uh, He talks about apathy. He talks about confusion. He talks about despondency. He talks about helplessness. He talks about hopelessness. Talks about regret. Talks about paralysis. Talks about uncertainty. And finally, talks about urgency, which he describes as this anxiety where you desperately feel like you should do something, but you have absolutely no idea of what that something should be. How many of you guys have lived through some of these emotions? Um, I oftentimes don't know what to do, and in my life I have learned one lesson. It's oftentimes very difficult for me to know what to do. Uh, I usually will do better if I'll make sure there are, I understand the things I shouldn't be doing. Uh, the way this is expressed is in the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, as if they teach doctors you may be able to help. And if you can, that's awesome. But first of all, don't make it worse. Say that with me. Don't make it worse. If you're in tough times, I want to say this to you. Don't make it worse. If you're fighting with your spouse, don't make it worse. If you're mad at your kids or you're mad at your parents, don't make it worse. First, do no harm. So rather than giving you a lot of answers today, I want to give you a few things that I would suggest you not do uh, in the storms of your life. And the first thing is simply this. Uh, Please don't pretend that the pain isn't real. Um, There is uh, in many people uh, a a strong effort to uh, compartmentalize it enough where uh, they live as though it isn't real. Uh, It's not so much that they would say that it's, you know, uh, imaginary like a Christian scientist might say, and it didn't really happen. Uh, Few people are that crazy, in my opinion, but uh, they do this job of emotional compartmentalization, 
and they live as though uh, the pain isn't real. Um, I, I don't want you to do it because the Bible doesn't even pretend that pain isn't real. And so why would you do something that not even the Bible would do? Ecclesiastes 2, verse 22. So what do people get for all their hard work and struggles here uh, here on earth? Their entire life is filled with pain and their work is unbearable. Even at night, their minds don't rest. It all seems so, uh, so pointless. Now, this isn't uh, the wise man writing the state of someone who has received the gospel. This isn't him writing the transformation state of someone who has found a faith worth living for. He's talking about the human condition. He's talking about what it feels like uh, just to be a part of the human race. Pain is a part of life, and uh, we acknowledge its presence, and by um, doing so, we respect its severity and we respect the gravity of it. Uh, pain is overbearing. Pain is all-consuming. And uh, if we're not careful, uh, we in some way, particularly in the West, will pretend like it didn't happen. And we'll show up at work as though it didn't happen. And we'll be so compartmentalized that we'll come to church and we'll hide the fact that uh, we're barely there. How many of you have ever done that? I'm going to raise both hands on that one. Uh, we'll pretend the fact that, um, you know, on the inside we're barely there. And on the, uh, on the outside we've got victory in Jesus. And um, let's, let's not do that. Let's not pretend that the pain is not real, particularly when the Bible doesn't pretend it's not real. Secondly, let's not ignore it. It's not enough for us to say, yeah, it happened, I admit it, but I don't want to talk about it. Now, I'm not against pausing because you don't, you're so overwhelmed, you don't think anything good can be said. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm just saying that hiding it in the closets of your life is not a solution. Can I have a big amen? You cannot ignore this pain. Uh, why would you do so when the Bible doesn't even ignore pain? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 8. This is the living Bible. Paul writing, we were crushed and overwhelmed and saw how powerless we were to help ourselves. But that was good. For then we put everything into the hands of God. Now, this is before there are Christian cliches. I'll talk about Christian cliches in just a moment. This is before that. This is before we were in the habit of coming to church and say, oh, weeping endures for night, joy comes in the morning. This is Paul not speaking in religious-sounding cliches. This is Paul literally speaking truth to people before there's any Christian cliches to mouth. And this is what he says, uh, we were crushed and overwhelmed. Here's a man who has received the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Here's a man who has purpose in his uh, calling. And here's a man who is used of God. And even with all of that, he is saying this, I was crushed. I was overwhelmed. But when I saw how powerless I was to help myself, that turned out to be a good thing because I had to put everything in the hands of God. He alone could save us, and he did help us. I want you to see what Paul is saying here. He is overwhelmed. He is crushed. But when he realized that he needed to put it in the hands of God, he actually learned God was the only one who could speak to the pain anyway. So don't ignore the pain, the Lord, the pain in your life. It's not 
fun to be involved in, but I'm telling you, you cannot ignore it. It is taking you somewhere. Hiding it does not fix it. It just pretends to fix it, and it begins to ooze out of the cracks of your life, and it is damaging when it does so. However painful it was to hold in your hands and look at, I want you to know it'll be more damaging when it forces its way out and looks at you. Sorry for being so heavy today, but that's how it goes sometimes. Uh, Number three, don't blame your pain on sin. There is a tradition in uh, religious community uh, to try to figure out why something happened. Uh, Again, it gives us this sense of control and it allows us to be judgy. And uh, you know how church people love to be judgy. Makes them feel great about how uh, they're not as bad as the other people. Um, So (laughs) I want you to know that uh, Jesus himself condemns this. The religious leaders of the day try to bring a dilemma to Jesus of a blind man and they want to figure out whose fault it was. Did this man sin or was it his parents who sinned? And Jesus stops it. He doesn't try to answer it in the context that they're asking it. He turns it into an opportunity of worship. And here is, I don't have time today, but here is a great insight for living. Everything in your life ultimately becomes an opportunity for worship. The enemy meant it for evil, but it turns into an opportunity for worship. It was something that nearly killed you, but if you don't give up, it turns into worship. You didn't know if you'd ever heal, but if you won't give up, it turns into worship. And so we err when we try to figure God out why. First of all, God's not an algorithm. And number two, we're not the programmer. Even if he was an algorithm, we wouldn't figure him out. We can't even figure ourselves out. So how are we going to figure God out? I'm going to try to speak as truthfully as I can, having looked at uh, these scriptures. And I, wanna, I don't want to just try to give you a churchism that makes you feel good about it. This is what I believe the scripture shows. Sometimes pain is a direct result of sin. Sometimes trouble is a direct result of sin. Sometimes these things have consequences in our life, but it is almost always a mistake for us to put ourselves in the place of God and tell God what he meant by something that happened to us. This is to try to elevate ourselves to the same understanding as God. And so when trouble comes in my life, maybe there was something done wrong and God will use it. Maybe it was just life. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave it with God. I'm going to trust him to be on the throne and I'm going to bow down and I'm going to say God is in heaven and I am on earth. Therefore, let me speak carefully. And so I, I, I want you to see it is uh, it is all it is wrong to try to uh, blame pain on sin. Let me read Philippians one verse number twelve. Uh, Paul writes from prison. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the gospel, helped to spread the good news. Paul has gone through a lot of pain. It would be easy for him to try to say, well, the reason why I'm in prison is because of those uh, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem 
put me here, because that would have been the truth. Uh, it would have been easy for him to say they could not accept people outside of their tribe. That is true. Uh, it would have been easy to hit for him to say uh, they tried to kill me. That is true. You can read the story in the book of Acts. All those things are true, but what does Paul say? Even this has been used for the spreading of the good news. This is a much better example of how to deal with loss and pain in our life. Uh, a releasing into God's hands the final judgment of why this and why that. Our trust is in God. We don't need to try to get in the business of pointing out uh, sin and judgment. Let God be the judge. Can I have a big first church? Amen. Number four, and this is hard for all of us, but I believe this is so important. Uh, I don't want to pretend like my pain is okay because it's, it's not okay. Uh, pain is, uh, uh, it's, it's hard. Pa- pain nearly kills us. Uh, pain takes every ounce of our strength. I've walked with a lot of you through tremendous loss, and I've been uh, impressed with the dignity whereby you have carried that loss. And I have, I've been amazed at the grace with which you have uh, carried the pain. And uh, in my troubles of my life, I've thought of some of your grace and some of your um, strength, and it has been a, a strength to me in my time. But I'm not asking you to pretend like it is okay, and I'm going to try to talk about this um, uh, at least long enough for you to understand what I'm trying to say. Hebrews 5 and 8, uh, the writer says, So even though Jesus was God's Son, He learned obedience from the things that He, he suffered. Why am I telling you this? Because we have this idea that God is removed from us and not with us in our pain. And bitterness comes and tells us God is the cause of our, of our pain. Not that he's with us in our pain, but that he is the cause of our pain. And again, this is uh, theologically necessary to recognize that you cannot be uh, a program that God spun up. And if you were, then he's responsible for everything. But if you are in his image, if you yourself w- d- d- work within a, um, uh, the context of the world he created for you, and you become and you create and you choose and you choose the tree of life or the tree of death, out of all of this comes a life that is lived. I want you to know that God was so hurt by the fallen world that he decided to take on the pain of it himself. He was so heartbroken over what we had made of ourselves that he decided to pay our debt. And it's hard to see God mourning a broken world alongside us because we in our humanism, hear me, want to hold God responsible for a world as though he's the programmer on high and he coded a bad program. It's more complicated than that. He created a lot of programmers and all of us sow and all of us reap and all of us sow and all of us reap and life comes with constraints and problems. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, and he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Every tear you cry, he has seen you cry it. And the poet 
says that it is as though the Lord bottled up those tears. He remembers what you have come through. He loves you. And uh, he was so heartbroken by what we had made of this world. He decided he would rather be drug in the mud of it than live life without us. And in this manner, he is uh, the second Adam. Uh, Adam fell in sin and temptation. Jesus was in all points tempted and did not fall. But remember what Adam did after Eve was deceived. He was not deceived, but he chose to eat of the fruit of sin. Why? Because his life testimony that he is living here is this. He knows what he's doing. He knows death is coming with sin. He chooses to eat as if to say, Eve, I would rather die than live forever without you. The second Adam will look at a fallen world, a world full of sin and loss and pain and suffering, and he will say to this world, I would rather die than live without you. And so we celebrate the gospel that Jesus did not leave us us in our sin, but he became the perfect lamb of God for sinners slain. He mourned with us. He wept with us. He was pained as we are pained. He grew hungry as we grew, grew, grew hungry. He endured loss as we endure loss. And Hebrews goes on to say five and nine, suffering made Jesus perfect. And now he can save forever all who obey him. This is what I'm saying. He went through everything I went through so I can have everything that he is. My hope is in nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I stand upon this promise. I can't fix my broken world. I can't even fix my broken heart. But God can fix my broken heart and God can use me to make a broken world better. And this is the gospel. Your loss is not okay. It's not okay. Don't rush past it. We're not, we're not meant to treat it as though it's nothing. The Bible doesn't treat it like it's nothing. The Bible treats it like it almost will kill you. The Bible treats it like you need to deal with it or it was going to hurt you. The Bible tells you you need help. The Bible says you need to call out upon the Lord and lean on brothers and sisters who will pray for you. But I want you to see, rather than blaming God for pain, see him as the God who gets involved in your pain. Uh, the best story, I've actually looked for an illustration that I think shows this the best way. And it took me a while, but I finally came across something that I think teaches this. Um, in Auschwitz, uh, quite famous Jewish rabbi was one of the prisoners there. And because he was so no, well known in the theological circles of the Jews, uh, he, had, he was somewhat famous, as it were. And he, uh, he was singled out by some of the guards at Auschwitz because of his fame and his notoriety to particularly humiliate him. And in Auschwitz, there were hundreds of thousands of people. And so the, they would dig open latrines, which were just horrible open sewers. And they would make, force the Jewish prisoners to dig. And it was a terrible, a terrible duty to, to be given. Uh, you're exposed to all manner of disease and people didn't normally live long in that position. And uh, they forced this known, well-known scholar to dig in the trench. And one day the guards were standing there kind of mocking him. And one of them called out, 
they called him. They said, where is your God now, Rabbi? And he, he looked up at them and he said, my God's right here in the latrine digging beside me. You see... This is the image of a God whose heart was broken over this world. A God whose heart was so broken that he said, I am going to fix it as a promise and you are going to live it as faith. And a day is going to come when we are going to be joined together with him and every wrong is going to be made right. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes. This is the core of the gospel. And if you fail to understand it as the core of the gospel, then you will have missed what it means to really believe that one of these days there is a promise coming for the believer. Uh, Let me move along quickly as musicians come. I I only have a a few more things that I want to leave you with. Uh, Number one, don't think that Christian cliches are going to uh, fix you. Um, Why do I say that? Because if you've gone through much of anything, you know, you learn that uh, cliches are going to be given to you by the bucketful. They're meant well. And they go like this, well, you know, the Lord does all things well. It's going to be all right, you see. Uh, That's how it's going to be given to you. And I want to be as honest as I can be here today. It may offend some of you, um, but if you're going to be offended, let it be said that I gave you too much truth, okay? Uh, here, here we go. Um, when I was, when I was on, in ke- on chemo, uh, most of you know I went through chemo, um, I would have people call me and they were going to give me encouragement. And I got, uh, some days I could not, I couldn't talk to them. Uh, now don't, don't, don't think bad of me unless you want to, in which case I can't stop you anyway, so go ahead. I just could not hear someone else tell me that God had a reason. I was, you know, miserable, and I did not want to have anybody tell me God has a reason. I wanted to pop back at him because y'all don't feel this way. Y'all don't ever want to pop back at people. But sometimes I I want to pop back at people, and I wanted to tell him, I wish God would give you a reason instead of just giving me a reason. You sucker, I'm going to call you up when you're laying on the floor of your bathroom crying. I'm going to say, oh, God has a reason. Here, just hurl one more time. God has a reason. Got to get you some water. Um, cliches are meant well, but they're, they're given because people don't know what to say. And they're good people. And if they could make your life better, if they could carry some of your burden, they would. They probably wouldn't take all of it, but they'd, they'd probably help any way they could. And that's why they give them to you. And it is a promise, but in the moment... It can feel like I just, I can't deal with this today. I, I, I can't, I can't face it. Um, I, I want you to know that uh, even though uh, you are given promise um, and it comes to you in language, something you read, something you hear, you have to live it out. So Abraham receives the promise of God. And then what does the, God, the Lord say to him? Uh, Walk the height and the breadth of the land. Uh, the cliche may be someone trying to remind you of the promise of God. But remember this, you're going to have to walk that out every day. You're going to have to walk the height and the breadth of the land. And so, uh, although the word that someone would give you can be uh, oftentimes uh, even kind of uh, wearisome to you uh, because you're sick of hearing it, I want you to know that in the walking of the land, you possess your promise. It's not enough to quote it. You need to walk in the land. A cliche will not fix you. You need time in the presence of God. Can I have a big amen? Number six, don't think you can handle the pain by yourself. 
It is fundamental to Christian fellowship uh, that we depend one upon another. Galatians 6 and 2. By helping each other with your troubles, you truly obey the law of Christ. By helping each other, you truly obey the law of Christ. Pain is so massive and so overwhelming. uh, We can't really handle it by ourselves. And uh, we have to face it. That's why confession is such an important part of Christian community. It's not simply making yourself accountable. That's part of it. It's also you facing what you're living through. And therefore, confession is part of Christian community. Well, let me read one more passage on that. 1 Corinthians 1, 4, and 5. God comforts us in all our trouble so that we can comfort others. Others. We receive comfort so we can comfort others others then when others are troubled we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us do you see and lastly don't give up hope in the middle of your pain what is the best way to handle uh, pain now I want to take you back to Job if you've read through Job you know that it is a painful book to read through because 40 odd chapters he's wrestling with God and I, I want you to see, uh, he, he makes accusations against the Lord. Now, he doesn't speak disrespectfully, but he makes pretty strong claims against the Lord. He makes defense of himself. He says, why did you let this happen? Everything that is part of the human condition you will find in 40 chapters of Job while, he, while he's wrestling with God. Here's a man lost everything, covered in ashes, taking the ashes, throwing them up in the ground, and they're drifting down upon him. And he's arguing with God. This is what I think the book of Job teaches us better, I think, than almost anything else. And that is this. Everything he feels, he takes it to God. When he's hurting, he goes to God and says, I'm hurting. When he's angry, he goes to God and says, I'm angry. When he feels like his circumstance is unfair, he goes to God and says, my circumstance is unfair. When he doesn't understand, he goes to God and he says, I don't understand. You know what Job teaches us? He teaches us how to pray in the ashes, in the trouble, in the loss. You see, what the flesh does, particularly modern mind, humanistic founded people, we pout with God because we blame God and then we go silent it's not what Job does Job sits in his ashes and he says God why did you let this happen to me and when God shows up and speaks to him you will find in the answers that God gives to Job you will find first of all an establishment of trust as the Christian foundation remember your Christian life is not going to feel like questions and answers it's going to feel like questions and trust questions and trust you will see this in Job you'll see that you'll also see that the Lord defends Job but I thought you were asking all of these terrible questions Job I thought you were arguing with God he was God shows up and defends him next God defends him to his friends he, admi- he, he speaks encouragement to Job. And finally, God restores all the outward sign of blessing in Job's life that had ever been there. 
He shows his love and his compassion and his blessing and favor upon Job. What does Job show us? He shows us how to sit in the ashes of life and never stop praying. So when you're hurting, don't stop praying. Just make sure you tell God you're hurting. And when you're angry, don't stop praying. Go tell God you're angry. And when you don't think you can make it, don't hide from God. Go confess to God that you don't think you're going to make it. And you will find this. When God speaks to you, He is going to defend you. He is going to protect you. He is going to give you encouragement. He is going to be that friend who is with you. And the promise of God is this. In spite of the brokenness of this world, a day is coming when every wrong will be made right and we will be rejoined to everyone we lost and we will stand upon streets of gold with everyone we lost. This is the Christian faith. And so I showed you that video of Shay and that smile and face and that twinkle in his eye as he walks by the camera carrying a tray to go serve somebody else. That guy, one day, I deeply believe, I choose to believe in my Christian faith that one of these days, oh hallelujah, I'm going to meet him again. And I'm going to say, Shay, my brother, I don't know why you went so early, but it sure is good to see you now. And in the, this is what you see about God. He saw your broken world and his heart was broken. And he said, let me be broken that I can make that world whole. And the Christian faith is that when we enter in that city whose builder and maker is God, every loss is going to be made whole. Every tear is going to be wiped from our eye and we will spend forever in the presence of the Lord. That is the Christian faith. Would you stand with me all across the house? Oh, Lord Jesus, I'm praying for every individual here today. You know exactly what they're facing. You know exactly what they need. Oh, God, would you let us be strengthened in our heart? Would you let the person here today who has been hiding their sorrows from you uh, be quickened enough to know the error of hiding their sorrows from you? The person who has compartmentalized so much, they... They, they realize that it's damaging them because they have spent so long uh, hiding and uh, ignoring and refusing to acknowledge that now it is beginning to slip out of the shadows of their life and, 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 and cause a, a pain that's not necessary if they had just been honest with you. Lord, I'm praying that this house, this church here on the corner of Sharon Amity and Shamrock would be a spiritual hospital of restoration for the person who is overwhelmed by circumstances, who is broken by pain and sorrow, they can recognize that you will make them whole, that you are invested in them, that you are committed to them. In Jesus' name we pray. We need you today. Minister to us by your power and by your spirit. 
I'm going to open this front up right now. If you'd like to step out and join us down here, bring your prayer request to this front. I would love to pray for you today. I will meet you down here and uh, fulfill the teaching of the New Testament and uh, pray for you, anoint you with oil. If you want to stay where you are, you're welcome to stay where you are. But all across this house, as our worship team takes us deeper into praise and worship, I want you to focus your mind on God, and I want you to cast all your cares on Him. I want you to speak to your soul, and I want you to say, my trust is in the Lord. My trust is in the Lord. My hope is in the Lord. I'm leaning not to my own understanding. My trust is in the Lord. Church, right now, all across the house, let's turn this whole place into a place of worship and thanksgiving here in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.